Welcome, everybody, and uh, thank you to the BBA for having us here. My name is Russell Beck. I'm a commercial litigator and a uh, trade secrets, non-compete, and employment mobility lawyer. Um, but most importantly, I am the immediate past president of the Boston Bar Foundation. So if you are not a member of the fellows, you should join it. And that, <laughs> that is my plug. And with that, I will pass it over to uh, Nicole. Hi, my name is Nicole Corvini Daly. I'm one of Russell's partners. I do a lot of the same things other than being a past president of anything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, happy to have everyone here today. I am uh, a member of the Labor and Employment Steering Committee for the BBA. And with that, I will give it over to Justin and then we'll we'll kick things off. Well, thank, thank you both. And thank you, uh, Noel and the BBA for hosting. And I, I am also not a past uh, president of anything, although I did have the good fortune a number of years ago to be on the steering committee at the BBA with Nicole, where for many years I was I was the only one willing to be the management side uh, rep for the the labor subsection of that. Um, and I'm I, I guess I've stuck with that because I'm, I'm currently the co-chair of my firm's labor relations uh, committee, which is all things labor and union. So I like to think I'm a bit bit of an NLRA uh, geek and dork, but uh, you, you'll tell me if that's right when we get into this. So. I've got a few things I just want to run through quickly to set a little bit of the table for some of the discussion that we're going to have later on uh, with Nicole and Russell around the practical implications of what we're seeing from all these regulatory bodies and potential enforcement actions in the restrictive covenant area. And I want to start with my favorite, of course, which is the National Labor Relations Board. Go on to the next slide. Okay. Let me let me just uh, pause yes. you for one second. Let me just because I think Nicole's going to let's uh, give us the background. Oh, um, sure. Absolutely. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah sure. So, and we got to get the the quick agenda here. Uh, yes, there we go. Thank you. Most yeah, important. No worries. <laughs> let me let me just let me set the stage for setting the stage for you. Uh, Justin. <laughs> um, so I think the most recent uh, thing that we're talking about here today is the issuance of a memo from the NLRB's general counsel. That came a, came out um, on May 30th, and it sets out her position that the proper maintenance and enforcement of non-compete provisions in employment contracts and severance agreements violate the um, NLRA, except in limited circumstances. And so the memo then goes on to lay out uh, a number of bases in which uh, a number of ways in which the GC believes that the use of non-competes chills Section 7 rights, and we will walk through those details in just a minute. Um, we're also going to talk to you about the FTC's proposed rule, which also proposes a ban on non-competes, as well as certain state-level bans, like in Minnesota, which is already in effect, and New York, which is uh, sitting on the governor's desk, as far as I last checked. Um, so all of that sets us up for a discussion of a climate in which non-competes are being attacked. And you know a, a discussion of the practical implications of that for uh, employers and individuals. Given the GC's memos, the most recent, um, and kind of the the talk of the town for people like Justin, who are professed uh, NLRB geeks and dorks, um, we're going to start with that one. So Justin's going to give us a little bit of the background because it's important to understand uh, when you're looking at this memo exactly kind of where it comes from, what the authority is, and and really what the board does. Um, so, Justin, with that, I will hand it off to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, if we could go on uh, to the next slide, please. So the, the first thing I want to start with is, is one of the most important foundational things, which is that the National Labor Relations Act, which is a law that goes back to 1935, applies to virtually all private sector employers in the United States, whether they have unions or don't have unions. Uh, employees have these protections under the law, regardless of their workplace status. So it is, on the one hand, uh, an extremely broad law in terms of coverage. There is a an important, I think, for this discussion we're having today, a very important exception to this, though, which is that the rights that apply under this law apply to employees. And there's a specific definition of who that is, and it's not in the statute, and supervisors are specifically excluded from the definition of employee and therefore from coverage under the National Labor Relations Act. So that, that's a question that you know I've seen very early on when this memo came out of, you know, oh my gosh, is, does this mean that, you know, I have a senior vice president that you know we're paying all this money to and they've agreed to a non-compete? Does that mean that's no good anymore? You know, and my first answer before we get into all of the other procedural and timeline uh, stuff in a minute is that person's going to be a supervisor in almost all instances. 
they're not going to be covered by this at all under the statutory exclusion. So we're, we're really talking about, and this I think links up really nicely with the agenda that Russell and Nicole put together of this constellation of agencies focusing on low-wage workers, because that's really where this comes in. Now, there are certainly high-wage workers that are covered by the NLRA, but all low-wage workers virtually are, are going to be covered by virtue of their lack of supervisory uh, authority. Go into the next slide, please. So one of the big questions that we've been seeing a lot on this GC memo before we even talk substantively about what it says or, or purports to say is, what is the process and how does this go from memo to law? So we thought it'd be helpful to lay out just at a high level what the board is, who it is, how it works. So the NLRB, the board itself, from which all the powers flow through delegations, is a five-member board. They sit in Washington, D.C. There are two Democrats, two Republicans, and then a chairman from the president's party. Uh, currently, there's one vacancy. And we've got a three to one Democrat to Republican majority uh, on the board. The board at a high level is responsible really for, for two main things. They conduct union elections. So that's when employees come together. They go to the labor board with an election petition and signatures. And they say, we want you to hold an election at our workplace to determine whether we're going to be represented by a particular union. They process that. They administer the elections. They certify the results, deal with that whole process. What we're talking about here, though, is really in the second bucket, which is their enforcement of the statute through the investigation and adjudication of unfair labor practice charges. And then the last thing to mention on this slide, and, and I've always thought this uh, terminology, which again goes back to the 30s, is, is a bit of a confusing misnomer. The, the general counsel is not the uh, lawyer that represents the board's interests in court. It, before the Supreme Court, for example, it's the Solicitor General. Uh, in the courts of appeals, it's typically uh, a group called the Injunction Litigation Branch or Appeals Branch. And the general counsel doesn't give advice to the board. She's actually separate from the, the board itself. What she really is, is the prosecutor of the board. She, the general counsel has final authority to decide whether an unfair labor practice charge moves forward and goes to trial or is dismissed. Go to the next slide. And it, it just following up on that, it, very importantly about the general counsel's role is the general counsel also decides what theories get moved forward to the board and get what legal theories get argued, what goes in a brief, what arguments are advanced, and what arguments uh, are not. We can just skip over the next two slides. You'll have these in your materials. These are really just sort of the background coverage. And I think Nicole's going to talk about some of these in a little more detail. But the memo, uh, thank you. The, the memo sketches out these these five areas where the general counsel believes that non-competes can intersect with rights under the National Labor Relations Act in, in a way that's unlawful. And I, I think it'd be helpful to give sort of a broad overview of, of how this theory comes into play. So all employees covered by the law have the general right to act together in concert to try to improve their working conditions. And uh, an easy, obvious example is they seek out help from a union and get a union election. Another way it presents itself very often in the non-union context is employees come together, two people, three people walk into their manager's office and they say, we're unhappy about this. We think your workplace is unsafe. We think we're not paid enough. We think mandatory overtime is too burdensome. Any term and condition of employment. That is concerted activity that's protected under Section 7 of the law and taking action against an employee who engages that in, in that in that activity is unlawful. This enforcement also arises, as Nicole mentioned, in this policy area. So in a company that has a written policy that would on its face or in practice restrict those rights is also unlawful. So I'll take an obvious example. If a company has a handbook and it says, you employees are not allowed to talk about your wages with your coworkers. That's a restriction on employees' ability to come together and attempt to better their working conditions in concert. So that's a violation of the law. So those are fairly... Oh, Nicole, were you oh, I, was, I was just going to say, um, as we're talking about this, I always like to point out for folks who may not be in this area that um, it doesn't matter if you have a unionized workforce. Absolutely. And especially um, I, I, in my practice, when I was doing more board work, um, it was with those policies that I found a lot of my non-union clients getting pulled in front of the board. And it would be in 
not necessarily even in the context of looking at the policies. The policies would come in somehow. Um, the investigator would take a look, and then they would mm-hmm. decide. Now this is a case about policies, right? And right. so it would. Uh, it at least in the, probably the early 2010s, it was coming as a big surprise to people that non-unionized workforces um, mm-hmm. were on scrutiny. Uh, but there it is. You are no. you're subject to the NLRA regardless of <laughs> regardless of uh, the presence of a union. You're absolutely right, and there was a huge emphasis on these cases. They were coming fast and furious, and even with the most sophisticated employers, as, as expansive as the view taken by the board and the general counsel at that time was, it was nearly impossible if you if the agent got their hand on a handbook, it was nearly impossible to get out of there without some nitpicking being done and pulling out some language and saying, well, this is a violation. Right. Uh, this is this is even more than that. This is more expansive. So if you take the example of, of wages, you can't talk about your wages. That's a restriction on your rights. That's a violation of the law. Agree or disagree with that, but that's a fairly uh, you know transparent concept, or at least I think graspable concept. The theory in the memo is as follows: as I read it, a post-employment non-compete has the effect, or may have the intended effect of making it more difficult for a worker to go from one job to the other. Meaning after their first employment ends for whatever reason, their second job may be more difficult to get either because they are worried about getting sued, they actually get sued, or their new employer is skittish uh, to hire someone with a restrictive covenant that would on its face prevent them from, from working for the new employer. And folks, general, folks may hear that described as just just to give a buzzword, employee mobility. And I really exactly. think the entire I think the entire memo kind of built boils down builds to, on that concept. Yes, exactly. So what what I think the memo is saying is it's saying when an employer does things like that to restrict, at least in the general counsel's view, employee mobility, that that means employees will be less likely to exercise other rights under the law. Because they know if the consequence is they can't get another job, then that, that they'll be less likely to do so. So, you know, one example that is given in the memo is employees have the right and under the law to go to their worker, uh, go to their employer and say, if you don't raise our wages by a dollar an hour, we're going to quit. And what the memo suggests is that employees that have non-competes may be less likely to exercise that right because the threat to quit can't be carried out if they're going to be restricted in their employee mobility. And that's really, I think, the through line of the memo's theory is that employees can't come together with, with I think, what the general counsel would, would view as maximum worker power against their employer by either actually quitting, threatening to quit, taking overt action that could put their job at risk in other contexts, because they know the consequence of that means their, their next job search is going to be more difficult. Go on to the next slide. Okay. And it, what I just want to do here, um, yeah, quickly is because I, we've got some really important practical stuff to get to, is just talk about the timing here, because this memo is, as Nicole said, the latest thing. It came out at the end of May. It's very broad on its face. Uh, it, it seems like a big problem, but we're, we're not there yet. So the way the cases progress is you, you first have to have an unfair labor practice charge filed. It gets investigated by a regional office. We're here in Region 1. It's in Boston, the O'Neill building. And then that investigation happens, similar to other agency uh, investigations. And one of two things happens. It either gets dismissed or they move forward to the next stage, which is called a complaint. Go to the next slide, please. You get a complaint and you don't settle. You go to an administrative law judge. You have a trial. You file briefs. The judge issues a written decision. That's a process that's typically measured in months, sometimes many months. Then you have a right to appeal before the full NLRB in DC. The NLRB has no timeline during which to issue a decision. It could be two months, could be two years, uh, it could be 10 years. Uh, there have been cases that have sat around that long. Once you get that decision, those decisions are not self-enforcing. So the employer or the union, whoever the, the aggrieved party is, can go to the United States Court of Appeals to appeal it further. Or if they don't comply with the decision voluntarily, the NLRB goes into the Court of Appeals and files an action to enforce its decision. And then there is, of course, a uh, cert petition right that you would have to the Supreme Court. Not a lot of labor cases go to the Supreme Court, half a dozen over the past 10 years or so, but, but that exists as well. But if you take the big 
steps in a normal case from complaint to actually getting a an order from a court of appeals. You know, every case stands on its own, but you're going to measure that typically, I would say, in the two year timeline, depending on what court of appeals you happen to be in and how fast your judge issues their decision. And until that happens, what what you what you're faced with at the agency level is does not have the force of law. It's not binding on any individual employer. And it's it's not something that is happening now. It's something that may happen uh, in the future. In terms of what the just NLRB substantive law is overall, the GC memo, again, is, doesn't have the force of law. It's simply her view of what she thinks the law should be. In order to get the NLRB itself to change the law through decision making, a case has to go through the process, result in an ALJ decision, go on appeal to the board, and the board has to adopt in whole or in part the theory that's put forth in the memo and issue a decision. Only if that happens, do we have an actual right covered by the NLRA uh, as determined by the NLRB. That uh, Even that process before you get to a court of appeals, I think you're looking at a year, most likely, if not longer. Um, so I know we've got a lot of important stuff. I want to be mindful of the time. So let me hand it back to you all now and um, happy to continue this discussion. Great. Nicole, you're so I, I'll just do a quick recap of that piece of things, and then we will move on. So just, I think, high level, um, we have a memo. A lot of folks have probably uh, experienced um, the confidentiality, non-disparagement type things in severance agreements so that you know that there's a difference there. There's an actual decision like Justin was talking about. It's, like a, it's, it's a memo also, but it's the McLaren-McComb decision that gives us an actual and all are a right, as you described it, right, Justin? So that's a distinction Correct. here. Correct. So right now we only have a memo on the non-compete piece and it boils down, again, it's only six pages long. So if you're interested in it, I highly suggest reading through it, but it boils down to limitations on employee mobility and not being able to leverage the threat um, of, of leaving for better workplace conditions. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the, the general counsel's position is that that is a violation of section seven. Um, so that's where we stand on the memo. And I think um, we'll see a lot of uh, interesting, uh, it'll be interesting to see what enforcement actions are pursued so we can see how uh, how far this goes. One additional thing I think is always interesting to note just before we move on from the board um, is something I've often heard described as whiplash uh, for the board. So you'll hear, you know, we were talking about the handbook policies. We're talking about what happened now. There was a period of time in the middle where there was less enforcement like this because this agency is highly uh, political. And so you hear people say the Obama board, the Biden board, the Trump board, you can have a pendulum swing over the course of years, that's really significant in terms of what your what enforcement actions you're seeing. And so, just be mindful that, uh, much like the weather in New England, uh, what happens one day may not happen the next day. Uh, it can be it can be um, like people say a bit of whiplash. So, with that, um, I think is it is it a discussion for Russell at this point? We're on the FTC. Yeah, FTC. Off we go to another agency taking a crack at non competes. <laughs> another agency. I think you're going to say. Uh, taking for itself powers that are supposed to be left to either Congress or the states. There you uh, go. <laughs> that, that too. So unlike the six page memo that the GC issued, the FTC uh, issued a proposed rule that also doesn't take effect yet, but it's not six pages. It's at last, if I can remember correctly, I haven't looked in a while, it was 215 pages, I think, um, maybe 213. But what does it do? It bans non-competes, full stop. All non-competes that are, um, you know, employee non-competes are completely gone or will be if it adopts the rule. It also bans de facto non-competes. And this is the one that makes everybody really nervous. So what is a de facto non-compete? They talk about non-competes that will have the impact. I'm sorry, agreements, not non-competes that will have the impact of a non-compete. So what does that look like? Well, a non-disclosure agreement that would be read by somebody, maybe by the FTC, maybe by the employee, maybe by a court, who knows, um, as uh, that, that has language, let's say, that says um, the employee cannot go, uh, cannot use or disclose any confidential business, inf any confidential information in the business. Well, that may arguably overlap with the what the employee considers his or her goodwill. 
I'm sorry, uh, general skill and knowledge. And so the general skill and knowledge of an employee can always be taken from one company to another, but that agreement may be read to prohibit the employee from doing just that. And if it can be, then it may be considered by somebody, again, perhaps the FTC, a de facto non-compete under this functional test. That agreement would be void under the FTC's proposed rule. Same for non yeah. Oh, apologies. Not 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 to interrupt, but to interrupt just for a moment. Um, one thing in, in, as part of the GC's memo we should note as well is that the language in there suggests that we're not just talking about non-competes, right? That we could be talking about things like non-solicits and and maybe even broader non-disclosure agreements. Um, we don't we don't quite know, but the suggestion is there that it could apply more broadly. So just be cognizant of that as well. That's a factor for the for the GC's memo as well. Well, so and actually picking up on that, that's an important point. So that's the the non-solicit you're talking about is the no recruit. It's the I won't talk to my colleagues as opposed to I won't solicit my customers. And what's important about that is that those the, the bullet points that Justin had put up on the slide that I think, Nicole, you're referencing as you're talking about where the um, NLR. GC is coming out, specifically talks about the, the, the I, I can't remember if she used the word solicit your colleagues, but certainly. She does. Yeah, she does. She does. Yeah. She uses the word solicit in, in one of the justifications. Yeah. So I think you can assume that under the NLRB GC memo that no recruit agreements to distinguish them from non-solicits of customers are going to be uh, unenforceable and void under the NLRA. I think they're going to violate the NLRA. Under the FTC's proposed rule, I actually don't think that the no recruits will get pulled in, although they very well might, because, the again, the FTC is concerned, as you already heard uh, Justin and Nicole both talk about, the FTC is really concerned, or at, let me step back, the Biden administration is really most concerned about the so-called low-wage workers. How you define them, we'll talk about in just a few minutes. But I think that's the primary focus. Though the FTC, when it's justifying its proposed rule, it's not just talking about the low-wage workers. It's talking about everybody up through and including the CEO. And it talks about it because it says that it has an impact on the mobility, back to Nicole's point about mobility. That's where they purport to get this justification that you are impacting the market, which brings us into the unfair competition. You're impacting the market for employees. So the, the bans on the non-compete and the de facto wind up becoming quite broad when you start to look at the potential impacts on mobility. And so one example of that, in addition to what we've covered, is the non-solicitation of customers. So going to that piece of it, because if... I am a salesperson and I have a, um, a non-solicit, but in order to move from the company I'm at now to move to a competitor, I need to be able to bring my book of business with me, even though it's not technically my book of business. Well, the FTC may, and again, this is all so vague, we don't know, the FTC may view that as falling under this functional test and constituting a de facto non-compete. So watch out for those because I think those are coming. And I do think as you step back from this, they really we, we don't know what the rule is going to be yet. Um, we're not going to find out about that until they actually issue it. And then I'll talk about that in just a moment. But the other thing that it does is it does have an exception. It does allow for non-competes in the context of the sale of a business or a business interest. So if you are the owner of 25% or more of a company and you go to sell it, you can be bound by a non-compete. But think about what that means. If I am a 25% owner and there are four of us and we are all 25% owners of a company that we can net each $100,000 um, and we can be bound by a non-compete. So we get $100,000 net and now we've got a non-compete. You may or may not think that's okay. What if it's a company that nets us each $10,000? Well, now, is that really worth us uh, being subject to a non-compete for? Is that who the FTC is trying to say, oh, it's okay to subject them to a non-compete? But contrast that with a 30% a, uh, owner, I'm sorry, a 20% owner of a business in which all five of the owners, so we're 20%, there are five owners, none of whom can have a non-compete, but all of whom could net well, maybe a million dollars out of the transaction. So how does that make sense? Right now, that is the proposed rule. 
I expect that will change. The other thing to know about this is that it applies retroactively. So any agreements that are in place, you need to get rid of them. Uh, if once the rule takes effect, it hasn't taken effect yet. Once the rule takes effect, it will apply retroactively. So you will have to get rid of your agreements. You will have to notify people who are bound by the agreement, bound by those agreements, that those agreements are no longer applicable to them. And then it also supersedes state law. So when it says in, you know, that it does that. Um, and so what will that do to the inevitable disclosure doctrine under trade secret law? Well, I guess we're going to find out about that. So um, that's the FTC rule. In terms of the timing of it, there is a Bloomberg article that came out a few months ago that said that inside sources suggest that the FTC will not rule, uh, not make a decision and then vote on a proposed rule until April of 2024, so April of next year. Um, I, I've I've dealt with the FTC before. I in in this context, and um, I know they received twenty six thousand eight hundred and thirteen ish, as Nicole says, uh, uh, comments from the public. They they are supposed to read all of those. I think they will. They're supposed to digest them and under, and figure out whether to make changes to the rule based on them. I I think they actually will. They are then uh, going to issue a rule. I actually think that that's going to happen much sooner than April. I would be surprised if it didn't happen in the fall, but you know, I don't have any inside knowledge on that. We shall see. Russell, so can, can, I ask, can I ask you a quick question on that yeah. point? And I, I know I'm asking you to, to, to predict something that no one can predict, but uh, and I'm certainly not an antitrust lawyer, but I'm just kind of wondering this. You know, Chair, Chairman Khan has obviously had a very aggressive uh, uh, agenda uh, pushing. You know what the how the regulatory space should work. And I think there have been what charitably you might say have been a number of court setbacks, including the Activision Microsoft case this week. I think the Wall Street Journal somewhat snarkily referred to it as the latest in a series of whiffs. Uh, and I'm wondering if that what seems to be an unbroken string of high profile losses on these expansive legal theories at the Trade Commission. Do you think that plays into this at all? Or do you think that's more just we're going to keep moving and if the courts disagree, they disagree, but we're not stopping? So it's a great question, and I think um, I think the latter. I think they yeah. are going to continue, and and what informs that in part is even before uh, Chair Khan got there, and she is, you know, as you might imagine, very um, uh, headstrong in going in this direction. Right, mm -hmm. this is not like something that she just came up with on a whim. She was planning mm -hmm. stuff for a while. Biden put her in, knowing all of that. Mm -hmm. I think this is her charge. So I don't think we're going to see her back away from that. Um, she's you know, really smart. And they put together mm -hmm. a really good memo. You may disagree with it, but mm -hmm. they, they gave a lot of thought to it. And I don't think they're going to back off of it, notwithstanding uh, that she is taking an extraordinarily aggressive position on everything and losing on many, on most mm -hmm. of them. And they also lost the DeVita case, the mm -hmm. uh, matter on the no poach. So I, I think the, um, I, you know, I, I think what's going to happen is they will issue something. I, I do expect they'll scale back. As I said, I think they're going to scale back on the sale of business piece. I think they're going to allow for more businesses to be sold. Uh, and then they'll take it up on the merger side, right? When it becomes an antitrust issue because mm -hmm. of the merger. Uh, so that's number one. But I do think they will do that. I also think that they won't, they'll do something different for the high level execs, you know, the CEOs and maybe down a tier or two from mm -hmm. Um, I do think they're going to, I don't know that they'll walk away from a ban entirely, but they may set a different standard or something like that. I, they Once they issue their rule, it takes 180 days for it to go into effect. It will be challenged, I am sure, if not on day one, day two. You know, it's going to be challenged very quickly. It'll probably be challenged in a federal court in Texas. It will be overturned. I think I... I I, I don't see how they get around the, um, what is it, uh, EPA versus West Virginia, West Virginia versus the EPA. And then the, which is the one that said that um, the EPA had, you know, tried to take on too much power um, and it got challenged and overturned. And that That is not something that an administrative body uh, can regulate. And I think that the court is going to do that here again. The Supreme Court is going to do that here again. They just did it. Uh, was it last week, whenever it was on the um, um, on the other case? And now I'm completely spacing on what it was. Uh, give me one second. It was the 
uh, Biden versus Nebraska case, which was about, oh, right, the um, the debt relief, made the um, student loan relief, and said that that was a violation. And you can see the EPA case cited throughout that by the majority opinion. So um, I, I don't see this as, as different. In fact, I see this as sliding somewhere in between the two. Uh, and I just, I, I don't see the, uh, the the Supreme Court allowing this to stand. So the current uh, body of the Supreme Court anyway. So that's that. Um, and then the um, I, I don't think I, I think there's a lot of noise right now. I think the bigger concern is not this. I think they the, literally the day before they announced the proposed rule, they announced a um, uh, I think it was three enforcement actions, as they called them. Never before has there been a so-called enforcement action on non-competes, but they went after a couple of companies, companies you would think, or you know, things happening that you would think, okay, I could see why the FTC might be pissed and might go after somebody. There was a security guard company using non-competes for security guards, and there was a penalty if the security guard violated it. The penalty was a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> so I could see that, you know, it's a headline grabbing kind of thing. So that I think will be the focus. They went after some glass companies, but that was because the the, um, the the market was a really small market. And so I could see them using that, too, because that really fits more, it seems, within the antitrust jurisdiction. So that's the FTC. So then we move on to what's happening at the states. And I think. Um, could I could I interrupt yeah. just for a quick second? I don't want to derail us, but I think one important thing to talk about um, under for both the board and the. Um, and the FTC is what kind of penalties we're looking at um, if if we were to find, you know, if there is a violation. And I, I Justin, if you want to just give us a high level of what the, sure. the act provides for and, and Russell, maybe you could say what the FTC intends for us. So, so the NLRA only allows for a make whole remedy. It does not permit the levying of fines, punitive damages, anything like anything like that. Under a decision that came out last year in general counsel guidance, the, the concept of a make whole remedy uh, is, is very broad, or at least they're seeking very broad remedies through consequential damages. Uh, make whole remedies for employees that get terminated uh, will be a reinstatement and back pay award. And then in terms of the consequentials, they will seek everything from interest on the back pay. If someone was late on a credit card bill and got a $50 late fee, they'll ask for that. Um, I shared with Russell and Nicole, I recently had an a NLRB agent tell me that they wanted uh, consequential damages in the form of the increased cost of a mortgage that went up when someone lost their job. Um, so there's all sorts of, of really interesting or controversial things they're asking for there. In this area that Nicole touched on at the very beginning, just having the policy where no one actually loses a job, the remedy is cease and desist, stop enforcing the policy and put a notice up in the workplace for 60 days. In some instances, read the notice, notify employees of their rights, but they can't come in and say, no one's been fired, no back pay, but you employer have to pay a fine. That's that's one piece of good news for the board. Right, and I think that's the opposite news for the FTC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there could be civil penalties, um, uh, costs, there various, you know, it's unfair competition, right? So there are potential consequential uh damages associated i imagine them going injunction. for injunctions and penalties and all and all that, good stuff. And all that yeah all right great um okay i just wanted to touch on that before yeah, we i'm not an expert on ftc law right so and on the damages under that but hopefully we will never get there because i don't think this is anywhere within the purview of the ftc's jurisdiction but we'll find out um in the meantime, I do think just as the, the kind of the cautionary piece, not to jump ahead to where we're going to get to, but I do think people, you know, companies and lawyers that are advising them should be thinking about the enforcement side of this. And that you, whatever the whatever the, the consequences are, whether you know de minimis under the NLRA or whether they are significant, and I think potentially significant under the FTC Act, I think the um, there is no reason at this point to shy away from. Um, making sure that your agreements aren't going to get the attention of the FTC, right? Forget the NLRA for the moment, I and mean, really the FTC, because the FTC, we've seen, they, they've brought these actions. We know they're bringing more, and you don't want your company or your client uh, to be a target of this. And so the low-wage ones, I think, are the, the biggest risk. So look at those. 
All right. So that brings us then to the states. And I think the, the two states that people should be aware of right now are Minnesota, which as of July 1 has a ban, full ban, just like California, Oklahoma, North Dakota. Those are the only other states that currently have a ban or that have had a ban in place uh, consistently since the 1800s. The um, um, in Minnesota, the ban applies not just to employees, but to independent contractors. And it permits much like California, Oklahoma, and North Dakota, um, but unlike some of the restrictions in uh, the FTC's rule, at least right now, permits any sale of business, non-competes can be used in, the connect in connection with the sale of business. It excludes NDAs, non-solicitation agreements, and various other identified agreements, mandatory choice of law and choice of forum. It only applies to new agreements, so meaning that any employee who resides and works in Minnesota has to be given a, an agreement that complies with Minnesota law, which means no non-compete. And um, it has to be, and the, but the law applies only prospectively. So if you've already got agreements with your employees there, you don't have to worry about it, but moving forward, you will. And then um, if you violate it, the, the employee can get their attorney's fees. I mean, they can also get whatever theoretical damages they have, but the statute provides for attorney's fees. New York, so the Assembly and the Senate have both passed a bill. It is currently sitting on Governor Hochul's desk. Um, it would ban all non-competes for so-called covered employee, covered individuals, which is very broadly defined um, and would include independent contractors if they've been told by the company, look, you need to set up as an independent contractor. Right? Um, and so... Anybody, anybody who we think of as being kind of an employee-ish uh, person would wind up becoming covered by the act. It's unclear whether it applies to the sale of business, uh, whether there's an exemption or not. And that's because the language has, um, it talks about non-competes, uh, covered individuals being people who are uh, economically dependent on the employment. So uh, it's unclear what would wind up happening there. I think sale of business non-competes are probably okay. But um, it excludes non-disclosure agreements and non-solicitation agreements. It has a, another mandatory choice of law and forum. It operates prospectively like Minnesota, but it also has liquidated damages as well as penalties and attorney's fees. So I think the penalties are $10,000 per individual violation. So moving on to um, the laws generally, just so everybody has the framework for where we are on the state side, non-compete laws prior to the NLRB and the uh, FTC have been the product of state law for over 200 years. I mean, it, there has never been federal involvement in this. The states have each have their own laws, 50 different state laws, um, all based somewhat on a reasonableness standard with th now four exceptions. Uh, and DC, same thing. The four exceptions, California, Oklahoma, North Dakota, and Minnesota now have bans, but every other state, as long as the agreement is reasonable, typically reasonable in time, space, and scope. So how long it lasts, uh, how broad geographically it, it prohibits the employee, restricts the employee, and what it restricts the employee from doing. You can't prohibit the CEO of a company from being a janitor at a competitor. That is the general rule around the country, except in those four states. Um, there has been there in the past several years. So since 2011, there had been 51 changes to non-compete laws in over, uh, you know, over two thirds of the states, 32 states all on the map. You could take a look at that. This year alone, there were nine changes in the laws, Minnesota being the most significant, obviously. They all tend to relate around eligibility requirements. So somebody earning below a certain amount or not have, or being paid hourly or something like that winds up being subject to, to um, an exemption. They can't be bound by a non-compete. And then there are other criteria like medical industry, for example, that the physicians and others tend to not uh, tend to be the subject of this legislation, these legislative changes. And so you wind up seeing exemptions or at least proposed exemptions for those. There are also a number of states now with notice requirements. Uh, those are, you can't show up in your first day of work and be handed a non-compete. You have to be given that in advance uh, or at least told about it in advance. There are some requirements that during the course of your employment, you have to be given a, co a copy of the notice, uh, the uh, non-compete anytime somebody might ask, or you may have to post something where you post your other employment laws. And then also uh, Oregon has this really weird one where 
after the within 30 days after the employee's employment terminates, you have to give them a copy, which seems a little bit like closing the barn after the horse has left. But that is the law in Oregon. Um, there are also fines and penalties now. Um, a number of states will take a quick look to see what those are, but there are a number of states that are now um, enabling the uh, uh, or requiring the payment of penalties for companies that violate their statutes. Just on the so you have it, we're not going to go through the chart, but here is a chart of the various states' wage criteria or other related criteria for uh, anybody that doesn't meet it doesn't get a non-compete. So you could take a look at that in your leisure. These are the states right now that have enacted recently uh, penalties. California, Colorado's is criminal. Not, we won't get into that, but you don't have to really worry about it. It's there in spirit. Um, Illinois, Maine, Nevada, Virginia, uh, Washington, and Washington, D.C. So if you violate the laws in those states, there's going to be potential for significant, significant penalties. So um Make sure you understand the new laws in those states before you do anything. On the federal side, so I said, this has all been state law. Now we turn to the federal side of this. I'm not going to get into these other than to be aware that Congress has been looking at this since, uh, uh, since 2015. And um, it all started because of a Jimmy John's case involving a sandwich maker who was required to have a non-compete. And that then led to all... Uh, um, firestorm, which we won't get into now, but feel free to follow up with Nicole or Justin or me at any point where I'm sure all three of us would be happy to talk about any of this stuff in more detail. What you need to know about the congressional activity at this point is right now there is a federal bill to ban non-competes that's in the House and the Senate. There is a bill that would be like Massachusetts in, in small part in that it would prohibit non-competes for workers who are not exempt under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, and then there are two others that really are very uh, limited and either partisan or specific to an industry physicians. So we don't worry about those too much. That's on the con on Congress's side. And then you get to the federal side. And without getting into the details, I think it's important to know just that the Obama administration started looking into this. They issued a call to action in which they suggested a lot of what we're seeing in the states. They asked the states, look at fairness and transparency things, um, aspects of your laws and see if they should be changed. And that's what we're seeing. So the states have taken, taken the Obama administration's directive and have been doing that. After that, President Obama left office, uh, or even before he left office, the, uh, I'm sorry, after he left office, the FTC then got involved. They held some workshops. The Biden administration really picks up. And that's when it becomes important because the Biden administration picks up with the approach of we want to ban non-competes for anybody who is, uh, you know, who shouldn't be bound by a non-compete. That's essentially where the Biden administration is headed. Um, and we see it through the NLRB and we see it through the FTC. I think the um, the only other thing to note about kind of where the how the Biden administration has played out on this is that initially before President Biden got into office, after he was elected, his platform said that he wanted to ban he wanted to work with Congress to ban non-competes in whatever way he wanted to ban them. Um, but then later uh, in, in uh, July of 2021, he issued his executive order and he asked the FTC to start looking at uh, non-competes. So I think, you know, what we're seeing here is really the Biden administration directive. And I see and I think we're seeing it play out at both the um, NLRB and the FTC. We know that they started working together last year. They issued a memo of cooperation. They were sharing information, the two boards. So, um, I, you know, my, my take is that they're just coming at it from two different approaches. They'll see which one sticks. And if nothing else, they've got the um, they've got everybody's, you know, everybody thinking about it, which actually goes back to Justin. You would ask the question about whether the FTC would back off what they're doing. And, and I had meant to say at the time that one of the th one of the reasons that I don't think they will is back when the FTC held its first workshop, which was in January 2020, just before COVID hit. They did it in person at the FTC headquarters and in, in D.C. And um, the, one of the panels was talking specifically about this notion that, well, um, we may not have the authority to do it, but we do it anyway, you know, and see what happens. Right. It at least gets people looking at it. So I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now. So with that, I think. Um, 
I'll turn it over to, I think, is it Nicole or Justin who's taken the start on this? Well, I'm, I'm happy to start. I think, um, I think generally what we're seeing here is a need to identify what you're trying to protect and how you can protect it in the perhaps uh, likely scenario that you may not be able to use a non-compete and maybe not even some of your other restrictive covenants like no raids, non-solicits. And hopefully you could still have your non-disclosure, but let's, let's, you know, have a question mark here. So what do, what are we trying to protect? And it's really information and relationships generally. Um, that's what non-competes are designed to protect. And, and the GC's memo suggests that you could have other means of protecting those things. And so maybe we get to keep some of our contractual provisions. Maybe we don't, maybe we end up relying on, um, federal and state trade secrets law, Maybe we just have to rely on our wits <laughs> and making sure, and I, this, I think we're going to get to this, the very kind of practical implications, which is that companies should be doing this anyway, but particularly given that you may not be able to um, have that additional layer of contractual comfort, you need to take stock of your workforce and you need to figure out kind of where um, there are sensitivity points that maybe training could help or, you know, audit your trade secret program, things like that. And so um, I think we're going to get into that kind of the very practical steps um, that one could take. And I think, quite frankly, I don't know that there's much more that we can do right now. Um, you know, you should, I think, as Russell and probably Justin as well mentioned earlier, take a look at who you're applying these agreements to. Uh, it may be that regardless of how this all plays out, you're still going to be able to use these type of restrictions for your higher level employees, those folks who the NLRB would carve out anyway, and maybe the FTC will continue to recognize as um, subject to these agreements. And really, you know, given the overall um, the overall climate in the country, that's really what we're seeing anyway. Put put the FTC aside. We're seeing a, a focus on um, those higher level employees and and courts wanting to see companies really digging into who's truly necessary, right? Not the not the not the sandwich makers of the world, not the lower level functionaries, but people in positions of authority, people with access to real confidential information. Um, and so, if you haven't been kind of in that mindset already, now is a great time to start that analysis and really figure out what you need to protect. Justin, anything else on that you wanna? Yeah, the, the only other thing I would add to, and I, I think that's absolutely the right summary is, you know, in a lot of ways, when you're thinking about what the NLRB is trying to do with what I would call pretty standard agreements to protect uh, the, the company's rights and whether it's confidentiality, non-disparagement, or non-competes or non-disclosures, you need to balance, I think, what your business objectives are and risk to the, to the business versus, you know, what the NLRB might do, um, particularly where what we're talking about is a, is a bit of a stretch, I think, to put it generously. And every time the, the board sort of steps out of its box and, and starts to encroach on another uh, area of law that's traditionally regulated elsewhere here in the States, I'm reminded of, and, and many of you will remember this, when the board took this very aggressive and expansive view that arbitration agreements with class action waivers were unlawful. And the theory there, I think, frankly, was uh, more directly uh, connected to the statute by far than this one. And in that circumstance, it's long been the case that employees filing a class action are engaging in protected activity. And the theory was if you waive that right uh, or you force people to waive that right, that's a violation of the law. That's, I think, several steps more connected than what we have here. <laughs> we all know the Supreme Court didn't agree, and what, which is the final answer. But to me, what's the more interesting thing is what happened in the middle. And there are dozens, maybe 100 cases where the NLRB issued a complaint, issued a decision, had an ALJ trial and said, you employer violated the law well, by requiring people to sign these uh, uh, arbitration agreements with class action waivers. In the meantime, those same employees were going to court in class actions, and the federal district courts we're granting employers motions to compel arbitration. And, you know, if I could sum it up quickly for time, the courts basically said, what are you talking about, NLRB? We've got the FAA. We've got decades and decades of Supreme Court precedent that says arbitration agreements are to be favored and respected. You know, get the heck out of here, Labor Board. And, you know, these two things happening in parallel. And again, that's where there's an actual connection 
between a protected right to be in a class action versus not. And what's the protected right here to, to bully your employer? And I, you know, we were talking about this the other day, you know, where's the limiting principle? If the theory is if you make it less attractive for people to quit, they're not going to be uh, is, is eager to engage in protected activity. Well, couldn't you say the same thing if you raise your wages to double market? No one's going to want to quit then. Is, is that a violation of the law? There, there's all sorts of good arguments here, I think. So I, I, I certainly don't want to advise anyone to do anything other than comply with the NLRA to the extent you're subject to it. But when you've got a tension between two laws, I think there are some judgment calls to be made about which one is, is going to be more likely to be enforced by a court. I think it's important, too, for like a particular company's circumstances. You may have some companies who um, are far more risk averse and just want yeah. absolutely nothing that would ever bring them anywhere near the the scrutiny of the NLRB, for example. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're, you know, they're already facing um, challenges that are bringing scrutiny under the NLRB mm-hmm. and they don't want anything else at that point. So absolutely. Um, they there could be companies that are more cautious. And I think the overall message as you know you Russell and I have discussed is the sky is not falling. Um but it could, right? So uh but the sky has not yet fallen in terms of of non-competes um at least not in our state and at least not um federally yet, but there are some cracks there and we're waiting to see, but right now people just really it's a it's a lot of um, it's not the best answer, but it's a very lawyer, lawyerly answer, which is we have to monitor it and and wait and see. And um, like I said before, there are a lot of things that you can do while we're waiting to see what the final outcome is that will help if the outcome is the sky falling, but mm-hmm. that you should be doing anyway. Right. Because they really are best practices in terms of shoring up uh, the protections for your confidential information and the relationships within your workforce. So all that to say, it's a perfect time if you have like, again, if you haven't done it to start thinking about it and to ah, get your house in order <laughs> before, mm-hmm. the, before the, the sky falls. Um, so. Uh, I didn't int- I didn't realize that was the next slide, but I didn't intend to do such, I, I such a perfect segue, but I'll, I'll pat myself on the back. Uh, so uh, so how how are we going to plan, Russell what, and Justin? What are we going to do? All right. So the, the at a top level, there are basically kind of four steps to this. Right. So uh, let's walk through them. They're all on the slide. And um, and then we can get into a little more detail if there's time. But I think the most important thing is really to understand structurally what we're talking about. So first is understand the interest to be protected. What is it that you're trying to protect? Right. So people can say, well, we want the companies, every company will say we have to protect all of our information. Well, that's not really true. Right. I mean, you need to protect your confidential information. You don't need to protect anything that's not. So you can carve out all that other protection. You need to protect information that is actually a trade secret. Now, trade secret versus other confidential business information, who knows whether there's really a distinction. Some cases say yes, some cases say no. In Massachusetts in particular, I wouldn't worry about it. What you want to be doing is looking and asking the company, what's your most valuable information? What's the stuff you really want to protect? And then understand what uh, the obligations are that they may owe to other parties, because they may have possession of other other companies' information, right? Co-ventures uh, or other business partners, and they need to understand what is required of them. So you need to make sure that they understand and they're complying with that, especially in the new regime. For example, if the agreement expects that they are going that anybody that your client gives access uh, provides access to this information of the other party. You want to, and, and your agreement requires you to take all these different precautions, including making sure that your people are bound by non-competes, for example, well, you may not be able to do that anymore. So you need to take stock of it and understand exactly what the obligations are and make sure that you're complying with them at this point. You also need to look and see what you're requiring from other people, right? Other companies, what they are required to do, because oftentimes these agreements with other companies, confidentiality agreements with other companies, just say, you other company will um, will protect our information in the same way that you protect your information. What do they do to protect their information? Is it enough? So you want to check that too. And then you want to make sure they're in compliance with that. So that's the first, right? Understanding the interest. But remember that it's not just information. So now we've kind of said, look, we care about some information, not others, but it's not just information. It's also customer goodwill. 
right? The relationships that you have with your customers, which without them, most companies aren't going to be here. So because of that, you need to evaluate those relationships and how you're going to protect them if non-competes go away. So one example is we typically see that companies will have a key salesperson who is responsible for a handful of clients, and they are the sole point of contact with that client. One of my clients used to refer to as single threading the client. Um, That's only one thread that connects the company to the client. And you don't want to do that if you can avoid it. Now, obviously, it's more costly, but that may be a consequence of doing away with non-competes and potentially non-solicitation of customer agreements. So you need to look at that and understand the interests. You need to understand on the information side what the security landscape is. And that means both physically, so you what locks, where do you keep information? Do you have clean desk policies, all that kind of thing? And then also electronically. So are you doing the equivalent on your computers? Only people with a need to know have access both physically and electronically. So um, lock down certain areas of the network. Maybe you have to air gap certain information. Um, remote work does present challenges. You need to consider those and decide how you're going to address them. And that may be um, requiring employees, if they're going to print, that you've got a print log. And that print log also um, gets recorded back at the, um, you know, at the main office on the main server. Anything like that or access logs. You're going to want to make shredding. sure in those. What's that? And shredding. And, sh- and that was the next one is shredding. Yeah. Right. Make sure that they're shredding the documents and there may be different levels of shredding that are required, depending upon the confidentiality of the document, including whether it's protected by HIPAA or something else. On the administrative side, you're going to want to review and update all of your agreements. So what agreements do you have? Are they compliant with the law now? Offer letters to right? Um, your policies, anything. Are they compliant with the law now? Are they compliant with what you're expecting to change in the law? And what about making them compliant with kind of the reasonable expectations? So get rid of those low-wage workers. Don't have them bound by non-competes, for example. If you don't need to, maybe you do. And then operationalize everything, because no matter what you do, if you don't actually make take steps to make sure that employees understand the restrictions that you're putting in place and the requirements, and then you're monitoring compliance and then enforcing it, you may as well not have them. In some ways, actually, it can be harmful. Uh, there, there is actually, um, for those of you who remember early on in the in COVID, there was the smash my trash case where people were allowed into Zoom and there were all sorts of lax uh, controls on it. And the company and the court said, you had all these policies, you didn't follow them. That was a problem for them. So that's, I think that's, we could probably end there. We have a few other things mm-hmm. in the in the slides um, that are more like checklists and some resources. Um, we can go into them. Let's see, right, I mean, you want to know kind of how the various agreements you might consider map out. They're on the slide here. They offer more protection if they're higher up. They're more enforceable in accord if they're to the right. Um, training is critical. And then this, the, you know, when somebody's leaving, that is kind of your key period. So you can you spend some time looking at this um, or Justin or Nicole, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add on this or any of the others. No, I would, I would just say, I think we, and we've talked about it and it's, it's for, um, another presentation, but just in concept, the employment life cycle, um, which is, you know, you have to consider the entire employment life cycle. We've got the exit checklist here, but training at the beginning, training during, train, you know, on the way out the door, train, 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 um, if you can. And, you know, it may seem like a, a, um, a sunken costs or whatever of time and money at the, at the beginning, but, um, I think it will pay off exponentially um, if people really understand what they're supposed to protect, understand the consequences and understand what they're supposed to do as employees and the expectations of them. Sometimes people just don't get it. They really just Mm -hmm. don't understand how important it is. And if they did, they'd have no problem, you know, assisting the company and protecting those things. So um, it's incumbent upon the company to to train. You want to do the takeaways? Sure. Um, We still have non-competes make them reasonable and you're still okay in most places. Again, the sky has not fallen, but you have to monitor because everything's changing. You know, Russell's Russell's comment about 50 changes or however, even just nine in this, in this year. Um, and there are always, uh, there are always bills pending that are radical, but there are always ones that have, you know, more potential for getting passed. And you just have to, you have to stay abreast of that. Um, 
I think more often than not, they're all future looking, but like we have the FTC, right? Which is going to be retroactive if it happens. Um, so, you know, you just have to watch. Um, but like we said, you should be doing some many of these things already. If you're not, this is the perfect impetus. Um, the federal government is interested in these things. I doubt that's going to go away without some type of action uh, in some direction. So doing the things that you should be doing anyway now is is a good investment of time and, and time and money at this point. Um, it's either going to help you when the restrict the you know the contractual restrictions are obliterated, or it's going to have help you when they're not um, to make everything more enforceable and, and better protected. Totally agree. Um, now to prevention. Yep. So, um, resources are on the next slide. Um, feel free to take a look at those. This covers a lot of what we talked about today and a lot of just kind of diving into different pieces of it. Nicole, Justin, and I are all available uh, as may be needed. So feel free to contact any one of us uh, at any time with any questions. Obviously, it's a it was a quick program. It's an hour. We hope, you know, we tried to we tried to get through everything. Um, but you know, like Russell said, we're here. We're here to answer and, and chit chat. And obviously we're people who like to talk. So. <laughs> <laughs> and really fast too. We'll try to get through as much as we can. Really fast. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so feel free uh, to reach out. Thank you all. Thank you to the panelists. Uh, thank you to the BBA. Noel, thank you for um, making this happen. And uh, thank you to all of the audience. Um, see ya. Enjoy the summer. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care.